Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word. Let's just pray to open before we begin. Um, Father, we thank you that we can come meet together and to look at your word and to study it and be encouraged and be built up by it. Um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that your message for today would come through, um, that you would speak to each of us and to our situations. You would reveal yourself and also speak truth to us about who we are. Um, so we thank you, God. And just pray blessing over everyone this morning and all that we walk into for the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, jumping into Exodus. Exodus is a super fun book. They're all super fun books, but I love um, Exodus. It's really got a lot packed into it. Um, So I'll do a little bit of an overview of what we'll be talking about today. Um, So Exodus 1 and 2. Um, There's a lot going on in these two chapters that talk about the promises of God and how the promises of God are continuing despite the circumstance that Israel is found in. And so they are in a place where they did not expect when they have a new Pharaoh that comes in and does not recognize them, does not honor um, what was set up for them under Joseph and Joseph was, was there. And so they find themselves in a situation where they're living in providence, they're living in this blessing that's very tangible, and then over time, their external circumstances change, and they're at a place where they are being mistreated, um, and they're being hunted down kind of in a way, and seen as a threat. And so their external circumstances change, and life gets a lot more difficult for everybody. And yet, despite that, we see that God's promise is still alive, it's still active, and it's still moving, um, completely independent of what's happening externally. And so throughout these two chapters, we'll, we'll dive into kind of how that plays out. Um, but I, I really want everyone to be encouraged that as we look at this, um, to just be reminded how God's promises are still at work, um, and to remain faithful to what he's called us to do, um, despite how it might be difficult, how that may conflict with the place that we're in and how he will sustain us and he is there and he will find new ways to um, make sure that his promises are preserved and he will start new things and rise up new people to be able to protect what God wants to do in his plan. And there's no enemy, there's no Um, conflict. There's nothing that will come up against us as the children of God that God won't be able to deal with, that he won't be able to break through to bring deliverance. And so that's kind of the overall message that I felt on my heart from these two chapters. And yeah, I just pray that we're encouraged and we'll pray. And and there's a couple of questions that I want to throw out that we can kind of challenge ourselves with. And so I'm going to dive in. So Exodus 1, starts off talking about the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel that are in Egypt. 
And then in verse 6, Exodus 1, 6, says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So we're moving on in time here. And then 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So this verse 7 really sets up the preface for what's going to be talked about. And in this, we see the terminology of Israel was fruitful, they increased, they multiplied, and they filled the land. And in your brain, you should kind of be firing off that this is reminding us of the promises that God gave, or the command that he gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and to subdue the land. Um, But also he repeats this to Abraham, um, saying that you are going to be a great nation, I'm going to multiply you, you're going to be like the sands and be like the stars in heaven in terms of number. You'll be increasing greatly. And I have this land that you're, I'm going to give to you. And so you're going to have this nation that's going to be able to fill the land. And so this verse is kind of a reminder to go and pick up on those promises, to go and remember um, what God has said and declared beforehand. Um, so I cross-reference Genesis 46.3. It says, then he said, I am God, the God of your father, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Um, So it's a promise that in Egypt, they'll become a great nation. So immediately, beginning of Exodus, we see that that is happening. Also in Acts 7.17, it says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So in Acts, um, recounting what was happening, what happened in the past, giving overview and saying, as these promises are coming about, as God is beginning to move, a sign of that is that the people are going to be increasing greatly in the land. So God's promise that started with Adam and was repeated to Abraham is still at work, even though Israel is in a foreign land. So not in the promised land, but they're in a foreign land. And despite their place not being in in the right place that they're going to be in, God's promise is still preserved, it's still active, and still moving. Um, God's blessing is still actively on Israel to a degree that is recognized by other nations. Israel is marked by God, even in foreign land. And so this sign of multiplication, this sign of, of being fruitful in these generations, increasing, increasing, um, as we'll get into, is a sign to Pharaoh that there is there's something going on with Israel. And he starts to see this as a threat. And if you think of childbirth and fertility and, and survival rates for ancient times, um, it's fairly low compared to today. Um, we have a lot more knowledge. We have a lot more medical assistance today. Um, and so it's still an issue, but it's not as, as bad as it was back then for mortality rates and infant mortality. And so to have a nation in not too long of a time for families to be able to grow and be very fruitful, to be very fertile, is something that was a a center, like central idea for many religions, where there is a ton of different fertility rites and rituals and cults and things with other religions, where they were doing lots of things that their crops would be fertile, and so they would be fertile. And so to everybody in the ancient culture, to have a nation that is very, very fertile and has a good survival rate, is seen as a blessing from the gods, basically, is seen as they are protected, they're under blessing. And so God is making his name known in a way that the culture would understand. 
So moving on to verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So he's worried about them escaping the land, joining enemies. Um, we know they do eventually escape from the land. Eleven, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Phytham and Ramses. So we're given this information that time has moved on. There's a new Pharaoh in town. Now, historically, there's tons of debate over who this Pharaoh is, who this king is, what the historical figure and what the exact timeline is where the Hebrews are under oppression from Egypt. So I'm just going to give two examples of, of a discussion about that. But the reality is there's no clear common consensus over who this Egyptian king was, which I don't think for our purposes is totally necessary to know exactly the historical figure. But to kind of see a little bit of the, the Egyptian context and how they dealt with things can help us make sense of Pharaoh's actions and his attitude. So I have um, one source and I have all these notes that I can, I can post. So there's one from Britannica and it says, um, Ramses II became king as a teenager and reigned for 67 years. He aspired to defeat the Hittites and control all of Syria. But in the fifth year of his reign, Ramses walked into a Hittite trap laid for him at Kadesh on the Orontes River in Syria. By sheer determination, he fought his way out. But in light of his purpose, the battle was an utter failure. Yet Ramses, like all pharaohs, claimed to be divine. Therefore, the defeat had to be interpreted as a marvelous victory in which he alone was able to subdue the Hittites. His wounded ego expressed itself in massive building operations throughout Egypt. And before the reign ended, the boast of his success filled acres of wall space. So this historical figure, he is defeated early on. He's kind of embarrassed. And so he kind of compensates for himself by going back and trying to build great cities and trying to make himself look good. This is one possible Pharaoh could have been. And if it's not, it still gives us an insight into the culture and how the Pharaohs in general dealt with things. Here's another resource from um, a commentary. It says, now there arose a new king about 60 years after the death of Joseph, a revolution took place by which the old dynasty was overthrown. Upper and lower Egypt, they're kind of split into two sections, were united into one kingdom. Assuming that the king formerly reigned in Thebes, it is probably that he would know nothing about the Hebrews, and that as a foreigner, shepherds, new government, would regard them with dislike and scorn. And so that's a plausible insight into how this new king comes in and doesn't know the Hebrews, where there's kind of a political revolution and a king moves from another region and takes over. So, like I said, the historical details are not the most important thing of this story for our purposes, um, but the faithfulness of God's promise despite his people's circumstance. So this kind of sets up, sets up the context of you guy comes in, Israel's situation totally changes from what it was before, from where they thought they were going. Under Joseph, they were under favor, they were recognized by Pharaoh, they were in um, a place where they were given land and stuff, and it was just, it was really working out for them. Now it's like suddenly everything changes. All that is taken out from under their feet. But the story is prefaced by saying God's divine blessing is over them and everybody sees it.
So Pharaoh continues to make life miserable for them. And he's really afraid because Israel's numbers are growing really large. And so they're becoming a military threat. They're becoming an alliance threat. They are also becoming a threat because their God is up to something. He's doing something and Pharaoh can't control it. And as I mentioned before, and with the resources, they believed the Pharaoh, they believed in Egypt that he was the incarnation of one of their gods, Horus. And so when he became Pharaoh and he was inaugurated, he, in their understanding, became part of the god Horus. And so he was literally God in human form. And so anything that challenged him, anything that came against them was seen as not just a political thing, but also a religious thing um, where their gods were at war with another, one another. So I'll jump down to cross-reference to Psalm 105, 23 to 25. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to turn their hearts Egypt to hate his people, God's people, to deal craftily with his servants. Um, so this is a psalm recounting what's happening, looking back with hindsight. And then Psalm 83, 2 to 5. Psalm 83, 2 to 5 says, For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Talk about enemies against the people of Israel. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. And this psalm is not talking specifically about Egypt, but it's talking about the posture of the people of the world towards the children of God. And so then it goes on to list a bunch of nations that, that are coming against Israel. And so this is a theological insight as what is the identity of the people of the world? And the three questions that I'm always asking when I'm going through scripture is, what is this writer telling me about who God is? What is this writer telling me about who children of God is? And what is this writer telling us about who the world is? It's always answering those three questions. And so we can see throughout the story and you can see Psalms in, in hindsight that the world is at war with the people of God. Um, the seed of a serpent is at war with the seed of the woman. And this idea repeats itself. It's a principle that repeats itself in cycles all throughout the Bible story through it's just different nations fill that role. And today we still have that. It's the same thing happening. Um, just new people, new empires, new governments, all this kind of stuff over time. When a nation is not submitted to God, they go against God. And so that is um, not to be, you know, doomsday, but it's an encouragement that like, hey, this is going to be going on, yet God is still moving. So, yeah, this is the reality of, of how the world works. They're always at war with the children of God. But let us be encouraged as we see how Israel is protected by God through it. So if we jump down to verse 17, the Pharaoh has spoken to the midwives and he has said, if it's a son, you got to kill them because you guys are growing too fast, too big, and I can't have you being fertile. And also I can't have a bunch of men that could start an army or be an assistance to another army. So he says, every male you have to kill, but females you're allowed to live. And so this is the midwife's response. They say in verse 17, um, they don't say, but it says, 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let male children live. So the midwives use heavenly wisdom. A secular wisdom would say, you know, the king of, of Egypt is very powerful. He's got a lot of resources. He's got a military. Do whatever he says because you're threatened or else. But it says that they feared God. And we know from Proverbs that wisdom, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's understanding who God is, putting God in his rightful place and acting accordingly. So the midwives use heavenly wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. Not only was killing children immoral, but it directly contradicted God's promise and command to multiply. So like I said, if you go back to Eden, the command to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. And we see that um, also repeated to Noah when the population is wiped out. So many times we see the command, be fruitful and multiply. We get to Abraham, the promise is given to Israel specifically as a nation, said to multiply, be fruitful. And that only not only was a command, but it was also a sign of God's promise. It was his promise to fulfill. And so when Pharaoh asks them to kill the males that are being born, yeah, it's not just not just a moral act, but it is a challenge against God's promise. It's a challenge against what God has asked them to do. And so in putting God in his rightful place, having the fear of the Lord, they say, no, we're going to listen to God's promises. We're going to listen to what God has specifically told us to do. And so they, they don't, in faith, they continue allowing his children to live and continue to operate in God's promises. And this brings up a question which I won't dive into a lot right now, but I'm just going to throw it out there and then we can come back to it, is in our lives, do we submit to things that replace God's provision and promises? Are there things that we just kind of culturally do, things that we kind of, you know, when it comes to our leisure or whatever else, things that we just kind of accept and go along with in our culture that actually directly replace what God has told us or what God has um, how he's asked us to live. And so um, I think of things like peace, like God's peace and God's rest for ourselves. Are there ways that we just kind of keep up with culture and, and just do the status quo that actually compete with God's commands and God's promise about giving us rest um, is maybe one example. So we can come back to that later in the discussion, but just putting that out there for now for you to think about. So yeah, 17 says they, they fear the Lord, and so they don't do what the Pharaoh has asked them to do. And they go down to verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because, 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And so God honors their faithfulness. And we think of even Daniel, the book of Daniel, has a lot of great examples where they um daniel and his friends are asked to do something that is directly contradicting their faith in god or what god is asking to do whether it's their diet or whether it's bowing down to the idol these things they remain faithful to god they have a fear of the lord that is stronger than a fear of man and they remain faithful and god sees them through as they remain in their in their steadfastness and so here we see that god's promise is able to continue because 
the these midwives stand up for their faith and stand up for Israel as a nation and say, we are going to stand in the promises of God. We're not going to bow down to this foreign nation. We're not going to bow down to this foreign God figure, essentially, to their to their eyes and the eyes of the people around them. They say, we're going to stand up for our nation. We're going to stand in the gap and we're going to accept God's promises. And it says directly in the text here, and the people multiplied and grew very strong and God gave them families. And so that's a direct affirmation of God's blessing and promises continuing um, because they have allowed God to have his promises upon them. God's promises is always available, but we as people can decide to kind of move outside of that and do our own thing. And then we are left with not inheriting his promises. And it's not because God's not faithful. It's because we choose, no, we're going to choose something else and get our promises from what culture promises us. And so in this moment, it's a really cool moment, moment where the midwives say, no, we're staying, we're staying planted right underneath God's promises. We're not going to move from it. And God affirms that very clearly. So into chapter two, um, we see Moses being born which is super fun. And verse two, it says the woman conceived and bore a son and she saw that he was a fine child and she hid him three months. So this is interesting when it says a fine child or, or a beautiful child, depending on your translation. And so I'm going to look at a couple of cross references here. Acts 7.20 says, at this time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. So in hindsight from Acts, says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Then in Hebrews 11.23, says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So we have kind of three different descriptions of what's going on. Um, we have that he's a fine child, that he was a beautiful child and his parents weren't afraid for him and that he was beautiful in God's sight. And so in the, in the ancient culture, when you had a baby and it's, they visibly, they looked um, very fair, they looked very beautiful. It was kind of understood as being a blessing. Like it was like, oh, there's divine favor on this child, there's divine favor on this person. And so whether or not exactly if Moses' parents saw that or believe that or affirmed that, that is the, the cultural understanding. And so um, we see a description of his physical beauty, but it's clarified in Acts 7.20 that God had somehow marked him that he was, was set apart for God's purposes. And so however that exactly was understood by his parents, it says in Hebrews that his parents were not afraid for him, even though that there is a, a call out for the children to be murdered and to be thrown into the Nile. Something happens here where they're like, oh, we're not afraid because... We know that God's up to something. We know that God's going to use this child. And so we don't have to be in fear. And then what's crazy is they put him in a basket and put him in the Nile, which is a symbol of death for the Hebrews, because that's the place where Pharaoh wants to take all the male children, throw them into and drown them. And that is a place that is, yeah, just a symbol of death culturally to the Hebrews and a symbol of warning. And in faith, um, Moses' parents are like, we're going to put him in a basket and we're going to float him literally down like a valley of death. And we're, we're not afraid because we know that God has a purpose for him and that his promises are coming about. We've seen God's promises uh, and us as a nation in a, in a large scale. 
And so we can also trust God and his promises on a small scale with our individual son. It's just mind-blowing how a story plays out that way. I'm going to try and close up the last couple of points here. Exodus 2.11. Um, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And growing up watching like the, the DreamWorks movie, um, I forget the exact title of it, where Moses goes through this childhood where he believes he's an Egyptian and then he finds out he's a Hebrew and his whole world is shaken. I like growing up, when I read the actual text and realized that he knew that he was a Hebrew the whole time, I, like my mind was blown, but it totally changes the story. So in this verse 11, it says he gets up and he goes out to look at the burden of his people. He's burdened already during his life, growing up in Pharaoh's palace and all this. He has this burden for his people. Cross-reference to Hebrews 11, 24 to 25, says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So this timeline of this claim, we're not know exactly, you know, was he always refusing or does he get to that point afterwards? I'm not sure. But in general, we see from verse 11, he gets up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So Moses had the opportunity to abandon his God-given identity from birth and settle for what the world had to offer, which is riches and, and place of glory and place of standing. But in a decision of faith, Moses decides to act in godly wisdom, the fear of the Lord, by fearing God and choosing to stay faithful to God and have his God's desire be aligned with Moses' heart. So we see that by he's burdened by his own people is going out to check on them, even though he has access to all of this and his Egyptian identity, he chooses to reject that and say, I'm, I'm holding on to my God identity and I'm choosing for my desires to be bent and aligned with what God wants and what he sees rather than what I have access to, uh, which is really cool. So moving down to Exodus 2.23 says during those uh, many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Uh, the king of Egypt died and Egyptian sources will often attest um, to the practice of new pharaohs pardoning criminals. Um, so Moses apparently benefited from this policy since he was not arrested upon his return to Egypt. And so he goes out, I know I'm kind of skipping over the story a little bit, when, when he goes out to the desert and he saves um, the ladies there at the well and then he gets married and he's waiting there for about 40 years. While that's happening, we see this shift happen in, in Egypt back home where um, the king dies, the pharaoh dies, the new pharaoh takes his place. It's not clear if this is like at this point, is this Moses' stepbrother? We're just told right now that just there's a new pharaoh in town um, who doesn't know Moses. And so this actually benefits Moses because, as I said, culturally, when a new pharaoh comes in, they kind of pardon the criminals, they kind of do a bit of a reset. And so Moses, if he had returned under the previous pharaoh, he would have on site been um, arrested or killed. Um, but under this time that's been going on, seems like, you know, he's out in the wilderness for 40 years, um, just sitting on his hands. But in reality, God is still working. His promises are still at play. 
his divine plan is still at play. And because Moses is under God's divine wisdom, he's choosing to fear God and allow him to call the shots. He doesn't try and rush into things in his own strength, but in his patience, um, which is a very long time of patience and not knowing God, when is this, when are things going to happen? You saved me from birth. You've got a purpose for me. I'm out here. Did I screw things up? And God we see is moving in a very practical sense, um, working with the politics, working with the culture and the religion system back home in Egypt. He's still getting things done. And then tomorrow you guys will dive into as the exodus itself kind of starts to play out. So let me pray just very quickly. God, I pray that you, you continue to speak to us about your promises today. I pray that we would have faith and confidence to stay in your promises, to choose your promises over what the culture promises us. And you give us faith to remain steadfast in that and to see, God, that your hand is at work despite what we see with your eyes. So bless us with that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the HeartStrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t-shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible bootcamp for kids. Let's become HeartStrong disciples together.